Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Nick McGaw, our retail banking correspondent. Down the line from elsewhere in London, we're joined by Hannah Murphy, our technology correspondent, normally based in San Francisco. And from Washington, D.C., we're joined by Kieran Stacey, our U.S. regulatory correspondent. This week, we'll be taking a look at Lloyds Bank and its offshore banking problems, a catch-up on Facebook and the ambitious Libra finance project and how regulators are responding. And finally, the Fed stress test in the US. How have banks fared this year? First, though, to Lloyd's. And Nick, you broke an interesting story on Monday about Lloyd's closing down or freezing 8,000 offshore bank accounts. What exactly is going on? Why have they done this? Yeah, so any listeners have a particularly good memory. We did report a couple of years ago that all the banks who are active in the Channel Islands had been tightening up their controls and trying to get back in touch with customers and confirm all of their details to keep up with new money laundering rules. And the story that's come out this week is, well, we're seeing what the end result of that process was, which is that in Lloyd's case, of course, the biggest retail bank in the British Isles, they spent three whole years trying to get in touch with large numbers of customers to confirm all their details, get things like copies of passports or driving licenses or some sort of identification so that they can justify to themselves and to any regulators that they have done their due diligence on who they're providing services to. And at the end of it all, there were 8,000 people left who had ignored all of the answers, essentially, and they had no options left but to just freeze their accounts. 8,000 sounds a lot of people, but I guess in the broader scheme of things, it's not that significant. If you're talking in percentage terms, specifically of their expatriate accounts in the Channel Islands, it's low single digits. But that said, given that these are offshore banking customers, they tend to be quite valuable. So you don't really want to lose any of them if you can avoid it. And there were staff working extended hours over the weekends towards the end of last year to try and chase them down and solve this. But from Lloyd's point of view, they hadn't necessarily done anything wrong. They were keen to stress that these affected customers, there was no specific concerns about them. But it's a good example of how difficult it is for banks to try and deal with these sorts of things if your customers aren't very helpful. Uh, Stephen was reporting the same things a couple of weeks ago with Deutsche Bank. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, as you say, there are other banks, both globally and in the UK, that are going through the same type of thing. Are we going to see a flurry of announcements on this, do you think? Well, I imagine you won't see a flurry of announcements in the sense of it's not something often that the banks are particularly keen to advertise. We get a but... flurry of scoops from you. <laughs> Potentially. I think it is probably fair to assume, and we may see a bit more detail of it coming out, that similar things have been going on across other banks. Specifically in the Channel Islands, we know that Barclays, RBS, HSBC have all gone through similar processes. We don't know the exact numbers that ended up potentially having to be frozen or completely closed. But this is a Europe-wide trend at the moment. After issues like the money laundering scandal at Danske Bank, regulators across Europe are going to be pushing for more action like this everywhere. 
This is a neat segue into our second story of the day and looking at Facebook and regular listeners will remember we talked about this at quite some length last week. They launched, just before we recorded actually last week, their Libra initiative. This is where they want to get into the world of payments, remittances, potentially a broader financial services array. And of course, to be able to do this, they need to engage the regulatory world Early signs were last week that there was a cautious welcoming, I suppose, from the authorities. But among the many issues that cropped up over the past week from various commentators, including some of the big regulators, we've seen a concern expressed around money laundering risk and other regulatory areas. Nick, run us through some of the highlights of the past week's regulatory responses to Facebook's initiative. The response from regulators was pretty swift after Facebook announced its plans last week. We've already had the G7, central banks, the International Monetary Fund, all planning to work together on a sort of forum that will look at the risks, including especially, as you mentioned, how to make sure that there are sufficient controls against money laundering. Then a couple of days later, over the weekend, the Bank for International Settlements, which is known as the Central Bank for Central Banks, said that firstly, it thinks that sort of coordination is going to be absolutely crucial, but also warned a bit more broadly about the potential competitive impact of Facebook and other big tech groups like Amazon. They did say there's potential benefits, like it could help bring better financial inclusion through things like getting into the remittances industry. But they were worried that big tech groups' data gives them such an advantage that they could actually become quite dominant quite quickly. And then once they're into that position, then they can start taking advantage of that. Yeah, absolutely. There's clearly a mix of, I guess, welcoming the competitive pressures that Facebook would bring to bear on some of the more egregious charges and so on in areas of financial services, measured alongside the risk of such a dominant player and maybe not one that has in place sufficient data safeguards around money laundering in particular. Hannah, delighted that you could join us on the phone. You're you're on a flying visit from San Francisco to Europe, and I think I'm right in saying that you've positioned yourself somewhere relatively quiet, but there may be trains going by, so apologies for the sound quality. But what do you think Facebook has made of the regulatory response? Were they expecting it to be as it has been, which is, I suppose, cautiously welcoming on the one hand, but also saying there's a lot of hurdles that you're going to have to jump over here? So I think the first thing to note is that they had already been in touch with a lot of regulators in the lead up to making this announcement. They had reached out and according to some of those that I've spoken to, had signaled their willingness to work with regulators in the long term to find solutions to any issues that they might have. But in the lead up, they hadn't been very precise about what exactly they wanted to do and how. So now that the lid has lifted on this, I think they broadly expected the response that they have received. I think they knew that there would be some hiccups and challenges ahead. But you've got people like Mark Carney and the Bank of England welcoming the move and signalling that they would be able to facilitate what they would want to do. So I think, on the whole, this would be what they expected. You mentioned the Bank of England there. One of the things that Mark Carney made clear is that he was and he made this out to be a very generous policy initiative, he was thinking that non-banks like the Facebooks uh, and other similar initiatives should get access to the central bank's balance sheet, basically, that should be able to source funding via the Bank of England in future. Now, of course, the quid pro quo for that will be that it must come 
within the regulatory perimeter of the big central banks and the broader regulatory architecture. I suppose the big question is whether Facebook is braced to do that. We'd always imagined that big tech companies wanted to steer clear of being regulated like banks. Do you think they're ready to take that on? Some experts say that the reason that Facebook would opt to use a cryptocurrency is precisely because it falls in this regulatory grey area and because big tech companies want to go between the lines and because they want to avoid some of the stringent regulations that would come with moving into financial services and banking. What is unclear is how prepared they actually are this time. From what they're saying, they are poised to be regulated, but there are still a lot of grey areas. So one big question is whether this coin itself would be a security, and if so, whether it would fall under securities law in the US, where regulators just haven't been clear yet what counts and what doesn't, and people have tripped up. So they're going to have to tread very cautiously. We are going to have to watch this space very closely, I think, Hannah. Thank you very much for your contribution. Let's move on to our final topic for the day and a look at the US bank stress tests. We're joined now by Kieran Stacey, who is our Washington correspondent, looking after all things regulatory. Kieran, it was a pretty decent set of results, wasn't it? Yes, it's pretty much good news across the board as far as the big US banks are concerned. They are, according to the Federal Reserve, better capitalised than they were a year ago. And they are in a much better position, the Fed says, to weather what they call a severe global recession. So while they would lose around $400 billion collectively, the largest banks, that's actually less than the Fed thought that they would lose in such a scenario last year. So things are looking relatively rosy. The Fed says that since the global financial crash, these banks have added a huge amount of liquidity and capital to their balance sheets and so are now in a much better position than they were 10 years ago. What about foreign banks? How did they fare? Foreign banks in the US are actually better capitalised than their domestic counterparts, and that's in part because of a change in business practices that happened under some pressure from the US government, I should say, around eight or nine years ago. It used to be the case that a lot of foreign banks used their US operations to raise money and then sent that money back to the parent organisations. Now they do a lot more keeping the money in the US and using that money to make further investments and loans. So what you see, for example, in the Fed results is that the most highly capitalised banks are all US subsidiaries of foreign banks. So they're HSBC or Credit Suisse or Deutsche Bank, which obviously has a lot of its own problems. But in terms of pure equity tier one capital ratios, they are in a much better position than their US counterparts. But of course, Kieran, this isn't the full picture here, is it? These are the numbers, if you like, the kind of quantitative stress test results. But in terms of arguably the more interesting element of the stress test, that's still to come. Yes, the big news really, I think, will come later this week when we get what is known as CCAR. That's the qualitative part of the stress test. And this is when Federal Reserve officials get to test what they think of the bank's plans for if such a recession was to happen. So Not only do they have enough capital now, but are their plans good enough to actually withstand what might happen should the worst occur? 
Last year, one bank failed them, and that was Deutsche Bank, and that has caused severe problems for the bank. Obviously, Deutsche has got a lot of problems worldwide, but particularly in the US, and it now faces restrictions in terms of the money that it can move back to its parent organization in Frankfurt because it failed last year's test. There have been some suggestions that even if they pass this year's tests, Deutsche will still face restrictions because US officials right now simply don't trust the bank. I've been told that's not true and that if they pass the stress test this week, Deutsche will be allowed to move money back to the parent organization. But that's going to be one thing I would really look out for in the news as it comes later this week. Well, that's all for this week. My thanks to Nick, Hannah and Kieran. And thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.